Hey, faithful podcast listeners, this is Andy, and uh, we don't have commercials on this podcast, but this is the closest thing we have to it, but it's not really a commercial. I'm trying to sell you something, because that would be a, um, a contradiction of what this podcast is all about, but there's an opportunity here. Uh, now that the three volumes are out of the Ministry in a Secular Age series, and uh, as we've continued to talk about some of those issues in the podcast, a lot of you particularly those of you who are um, leading congregations, have emailed me and often ask, hey, what does this really look like? And my response to you always is, I don't know, you tell me. Well, now there's an opportunity to kind of uh, lean into that and uh, learn together on what that might be. So um, by the great generosity of the uh, Eli Lilly Endowment, um, my friend David Wood and I have received a, uh, a very, fairly substantial grant to explore some of this. And the grant is actually called From Relevance to Resonance, which connects with Volume 3 of the book. And uh, we're going to have inside that grant, we're going to do a bunch of things. But one of the things we're going to do that I want to invite you into is we're going to have um, two groups of 12 that will journey together for, for three years um, with a little bit of stipend for you and some money to try some experiments in your congregation that moves from relevance to resonance or tries to address the the secular age that Taylor describes and tries to get at some of the more productive elements of resonance that uh, that Rosa looks at so and you know um, looks at that kind of theologically so it'll be a couple of years of, of studying together and then you experimenting and uh, um, yeah, us learning from that uh, all together so I hope you'll check it out right now uh, there's not much other to rep- uh, much to report other than to go to the website relevance to resonance which will immediately take you inside a Luther website. But you will be able to, uh, we'll just just know that that site's there and and check back. But applications to be part of this um, will be coming out, I don't know, probably by the summertime. And we'll hopefully have a little link that you can um, drop your email in there so you can get an email when the application goes live to be part of this group. So, uh, yeah, hope to see you in those groups. Hopefully that you're interested in it. And I think we had a lot to learn to learn from each other as we uh, move forward. A friend of mine called me up and said, there's this new thing. I can't tell you anything about it right now. I promise you are going to want to be a part of it. The next revolution is the we revolution. Adam Newman sounded like a mythical figure, but it was a lot of smoke and mirrors. When somebody tells you they're changing the world and you are helping them do that, It feels really special. The future is about being part of something greater than yourself. I believe every word that came out of Adam's mouth. Adam told me I was going to be a millionaire. WeWork wanted to become the next Facebook, the next Google. It became this poster child for this growing trend of flexible offices. They had already reached a billion-dollar valuation. WeWork was the most overvalued company in the world. They were willing to spend any amount of money. When I say they're serving alcohol, they are serving alcohol. Make some noise! Everything about WeWork was propaganda. For God's sakes, they're running desks. Are they faking it till they make it? Uh. A sales guy comes to me and he says, this is some kind of cult. Adam was getting interest from one of the richest people in Japan. They gave Adam Newman $4 billion and said, go crazy. It was like flushing cash down the toilet. Are you profitable? Right now, we're in a very high growth stage. You can actually choose when to be profitable. What? 
Rebecca was Adam's wife. His co-founder was shunted aside. Adam wanted Rebecca to share the spotlight. Adam was totally erratic. We had tracking bracelets on. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. He would talk about being president of the world. You tell a 30-something male he's Jesus Christ, he's inclined to believe you. WeWork went from a $47 billion valuation to near bankruptcy in just six weeks. This is who I am. This is what I do. Suddenly, this company is a laughing stock. It was weak for everybody except for Adam. Okay, I got it. Welcome to AMC. This is Andy's movie club where we look at different movies that Andy has been watching and just uh, talk I'll about. I'll be able to buy the real AMC with, you know, how much their stock has probably dropped in. That's uh, right. COVID. Yeah. No kidding. No kidding. <laughs> Although it kind of did go up with all the GameStop stuff. It was kind of a meme stock there for a while. But that's um, true. If if you haven't already watched WeWork, I think it's available. This was available on Hulu, right? Yep. Yeah. So 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 we would suggest maybe go watch the movie first. Otherwise, we're just going to ruin the whole movie for you. But uh, check out WeWork and then come back and listen to this episode. So, Andy, what did you think of WeWork? I don't know, man. I thought that was the most trippy, interesting movie. I mean, it, it was it was very much in the same genre as the Fire Festival or what, whatever that Hulu Fire Festival one's called that we've done a podcast on. It, like, if it, it fit in that, like if you're doing a double feature, these would be, um, you know, two movies to show together. And what's fascinating about them is they actually they they reference. Um, the we festival the the we work people reference the fire festival when they talk about like doing these i guess i mean according to the the show they would do these summer camps where it was basically you know like a party fest and they said well it was it was like the fire festival but it actually worked you know and then they pulled this stuff off but yeah it was fascinating so it's this company that decided to be the office space sharing company you know like the uber of office space and based in New York City, and it was really clear that they were not a um, a real estate company. They were a sharing company, but it was really all based on this deep spiritual overtones that it was not about me, but flipping the M to the we. And it's if we do this together, we can change the world. And uh, yeah, it was. It, it, and they grew tremendously. So they became one of New York City's only like tech company unicorns as they call it which is a company that's worth more than a billion dollars and i think what did they say they topped out at like we're valued 40, at it was 47 billion, billion dollars is where they eventually Bil- got to. yeah b with a billion dollars yes. yeah and, and throughout yeah, the yeah. course of the movie it just keeps ticking up and up i i have a confession i actually had to pause the movie halfway through to google WeWork because mm-hmm. halfway through the movie i still didn't really understand what this company did and i don't think that was a fault of the filmmakers i think that this Adam, I think, was his name, who was the CEO. He just had so much, like, quasi-spiritual mumbo-jumbo mixed with, like, Silicon Valley tech-speak that whenever he was describing his company, I just could never even get a handle on what they did. And then it turns out they just literally, like, rent you an office space, right? That I mean, that's what the company yeah. was, right? And yeah, yeah, it I, was I, just... I, yeah, but in a in a very... So what's, what's fascinating to me about it, and worth kind of the theme of our podcast here... 
is, you know, they, they started the movie and say, well, it's not that no one had ever done office sharing before. And I can't remember the company they referenced, like Regents or Regis or something like that. Some yeah. company where, but it was very corporate, you know, so it felt much like the office the office uh, lobby of a, you know, a dentist office or something like that. And what was fascinating about this is that these guys rework this and it wasn't just, we're going to give you office space is they had these really grandiose utopian senses of, we are going to rework what work is. We're like, we're going to change what work is. And, um, this idea that you could make a huge difference in the world and that, um, so it was, it had all this ethos of like a ton of beer and drinking and kind of partying, but also creativity. And it, it really played into this kind of uh, millennial sense of like, you can be your own boss. And um, if we do this together, um, you know, not necessarily as one company, but a bunch of different companies in this workspace, we could really uh, do great work. So there is this like deep glorification of kind of a certain form of creativity too. Like if you just can get a bunch of creatives together, we can change, we can change the world. Like they kept having this deep sense that you can, you can really change the world. Um, I don't know. I found, I found that really, really quite fascinating. And the thing that really struck out to me too, and we've talked a lot about this on the podcast before, but there's that idea of the thing. So the thing is what gets you to the good life. I just kept thinking of basically what this guy was selling to folks, and especially his employees, probably more than anyone, was that working in this space was going to offer them the thing. And it was just wrapped up. I mean, my my Charles Taylor radar was just going into hyperdrive while I was watching this thing. I think the reason this thing got so far with as vapid as a, of a concept as it was was because people really – bought into this idea that working in this place was going to be your thing. And there was that one part where they all like started living together and was that we yeah. live, they, they spun we off. Live, into, yeah. Yeah. into like right. the apartments and stuff. And the one guy was saying like, it was really weird if we actually went out to friends, houses outside of the complex, like we just never left and it just got mm. really weird. It almost reminded me of a cult a little bit. Yeah. And, they, and, they, and it's, it's just fascinating throughout the whole thing as we kind of think about, um, you know, ministry and just life in a sec inside of a secular age is that this is a really good example of Taylor's kind of uh, articulation of the Nova effect or this deep longing that exists within late modern people to have a spiritual center, you know, like that's in some ways what allows this thing to work. And Adam, this guy who, you know, they set this up at the beginning, like every company needs to have a mythology and uh, which I think is is really a fascinating thing too like as reductive as we are away from transcendence or away from needing even a meta narrative we all we, we deeply need a myth that we live by which obviously is a, 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 in many ways a meta narrative you know so, so we deeply need that and you strip those all away and people go looking for them and looking for them in incredibly benign things like where you house your computer in your office space, you know, and then you can get someone like Adam, who's like this just dynamic, charismatic person who's going to change the world through renting office space to people, you know, and it just has this kind of grandiose sense, which is also something, you know, like we talk about in congregation of secular age, but like the way the kind of Silicon Valley, we're going to change the world through an app, um, you know, and he keeps on saying like, we're not a real estate company. We are a company. I can't even remember what he says. Like we're a, we're a company that brings creatives together to change the world, to find their most inner longings within themselves. We're the, we we're about we, because we believe that you have something dynamic within you. 
So there's just this incredible way that kind of spiritual language is just a, a central dynamic for um, for these for these folks, you know, like. Um, but I find what I find so deeply fascinating about it is how much this spiritual language pulls in, and these people that they now have interviewed who worked from the beginning there have all these, you know, are hurt by what's happened as the company crashed and burned and um, feel like they were kind of manipulated within this. But they all talk about how deeply they were yearning for a bigger narrative to live inside of and how much they wanted that. But it just raises a huge question, I think, for our larger culture, which is can you take something like community, which is this forming myth for these guys, you know, is that what Adam grew up on a kibbutz in Israel and the, the other co-founder grew up in a kind of commune in, in Oregon or something. And they tried to like take this and then drop it inside of a late capitalism, you know, and both make it about community but also make it about making millions and billions even of dollars you know and so i mean it's a huge question of like can you have community inside of this kind of capitalism that we're living out of and in some senses you maybe can have something like it at least to get down the road because creativity seems to be a, a stronger currency than money itself but it's never devoid of money like you know he even when he recruits his secretary or his administrator he's like you're gonna make millions of dollars and he even has this speech in front of people like we have to do what we love and if we do it together and you find what's in you and the only thing that's stopping you is you but those who work the hardest should make the most money and we can all be rich. And so there's just this weird kind of thing that I find so deeply fascinating about younger people. And maybe I'm just speaking here as like a Gen Xer who's like, dude, capitalism will screw you three ways, <laughs> you know, three ways to tomorrow. Like if you think that you're going to, it's going to actually fulfill you, um, it's not going to work that way. And maybe that's just my cynicism, but it's really fascinating of what happened with, you know, people, maybe your age, Derek, and younger about this sense that you could combine this altruistic sense of making the world a better place and just ravage desire to make money. And those things could be held together. Well, and I got the sense too, and maybe this goes into Hartman Rosa a little bit, you know, so they have to have their investors. So there's that Japanese gentleman who's the angel investor and just keeps yeah. throwing billions and billions of dollars at them. But then they have to go to the Saudi royal family to get more money. So for me, there was sort of this axe dangling over their heads the whole time too, because on the one hand, yeah, you got to make community, but in order to make your investors happy, you gotta you gotta put out. So then, when they start doing all the actual like Wall Street analysis and fundamentals and stuff, they realize that this thing is just burning money, and that's when the house of cards totally topples. And that was the big takeaway that I had, um, just kind of like you mentioned too, is there is something about the millennial generation, and I'm one of them. I don't know exactly why this is, and sometimes I think talking about generations is kind of reductionist anyway, but there is sort of this big idea out in society that, like you said, you can kind of have this mix between your fulfillment in life and the just rabid capitalism and the rabid making of money, and at a certain point, those two things just don't compute, and that's that's when you get all the 
the, the house of cards tumbling. And I, I just love that one part where they said, yeah, he just went surfing for like two months and nobody knew where he went. And that was the point where it's just like, okay, like this isn't working out for him. And this guy knows that the writing's on the wall, but all of his followers are still, you know, buying into it. Right. And, uh, it's just, it's well, really it was- interesting. And what's crazy is that, you know, not to jump us to the end of this movie, but, you know, uh, the company just starts hemorrhaging its evaluation and, and, you know, becoming less and less. And Adam actually gets a parachute out and he gets to leave the company with like one point seven or one point four billion dollars, man. Like he gets to leave. So where's the weenus in that? You know what I mean? Like he at the end of the day, he gets he gets his exit and all those other employees were left with like nothing, you know. So, yeah, it's just it's an interesting thing. You know, I, I, I guess it's a question for us of like what constitutes community and can you have community without self-sacrifice? where people actually have to give sacrifice something um, to be in community, which is what makes community hard. Like, let's not be utopian about it. It's, it's, it's a hard thing. But then you blend that with just a kind of neoliberal capitalism that says, you know, F self-sacrifice. The system doesn't work unless it's, you know, it's about greed, baby, to go back to, um, you know, the Wall Street movie or whatever. And um, so how do you, you know, like the thought that these things could, can be, can could be combined is is slightly remarkable to me you know um and that um could kind of naively be accepted by really smart people i think really smart talented people that thought these things could be could be brought together but it is is a huge question for us of um you know i mean people who are in the business of community like there is a dynamic within community that demands some kind of self-sacrifice but that can even become a moral problem you know, like we get very and probably some listeners right now are like, "Ooh, self-sacrifice like that. That has been used to exploit and hurt people, um, you know, particularly people who are not male and not white. It's been used to 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 um, to be abusive. And we should we should be really aware of that. But at the other end of it, you know, um, there there can be um, a, a huge utopian perspective here that is uh more than idealistic, but uh, it, it actually becomes in, in some way corrosive. And um, there is just an interesting phenomenon, like you're saying, of, of how these things be, become connected. My only thought on how they can become connected is I, I just don't think we've done enough work, and I think we have to be really aware of this in the church, of thinking about maybe how it's creativity itself that that connects these things. And I don't know if we've referenced this on this podcast yet or not, but um, Andres Retzvix, this uh, German social theorist, written this really great book called The Invention of Creativity and how like in late capitalism, creativity or being creative becomes this very important reality. And, and you see this with Adam, um, and I'm kind of working on this project now, kind of thinking about how does work change in a secular age, which, you know, I don't want to just be the in the secular age guy completely, but um, it is it is kind of fascinating about how after like into the 80s and you know then it becomes full grown in the the decades after that but the the move towards neoliberalism is is to get growth is you have to take away you have to take away regulations of a more keynesian um economic structure that was very much tried to make sure everyone got employment and there were a lot of kind of restrictions in places of for companies and you know the the reagan thatcher um, economic system really was to pull all of those stakes of any fences that would keep markets 
caged and allow markets to roam as free as they could. And you could, you started to be able to make a lot of money really quickly, but it also tipped tipped the table. So all of a sudden a bunch of people were getting most of the chips within it. But it also but there was this huge problem, which the huge problem was, you know, okay, so now if just a few companies or a few CEOs are going to make all the money, why would workers work hard? And still within capitalism, until the robots replace us all, you still need workers. And what would cause a worker who's going to get, as we've seen, the percentages, very little of the percentages of profits compared to what the CEO or anyone um, at that kind of executive level, or as they call them at WeWork, the CWEOs, which was the corniest thing I've ever heard. And all they were was a bunch of white dudes who partied together all the time. Um, but, uh, you know, what leads workers to work hard? And you see this in how people talk at, in the WeWork documentary is that what you actually need, I mean, what you got in a kind of Keynesian you know, mid seventies back through the 1950s sense when you worked is that you got a very stable work environment and you were protected. You had a lot of protections. Um, and so you, you kind of had ritual, you work was ritualized and it was stable And the humans. Those are the days. I mean, those are the days where you'd be at one company for your entire life. You'd retire your your gold watch. You'd have your pension guaranteed. You get your pension in. uh, Yeah. I mean, you were kind of treated like a cog in a machine, but you were, you were given protections. You know what I mean? And it was, it was pretty rigid in some ways, um, depending on the field, but, but you were, you know, you were given these protections of your pension and of my gosh, hundred percent health insurance and things like that. But all that stuff became, kind of regulations on a company and to throw those off would allow for more profits, you know, to not have to, to not have to look after workers, but what leads workers to then care. And so what replaces it, you know, into the eighties, nineties and into the, you know, particularly then when Silicon Valley comes um, in a digital world comes, um, you know, all of a sudden working, you're not given any, any really stability. It's a very unstable situation. You know, you're and you're at risk and um, you're not given a ritual at all. So what would lead you to work hard? And I think actually what a genius reality that was found was that creativity itself became the benefit of working hard, that you could actually work on yourself at work, that you could become your own entrepreneur, that if you became your own entrepreneur, you could work, you would work hard. So there was a this certain kind of way that work starting in the 80s and moving through the 90s and into the 21st century really became in many ways about a self, um, not self-help, but a kind of self-development process as these kind of French theorists, these French, French economic theorists talk about it, where um, you now weren't being supervised by a manager, but by a coach. And you weren't working in an apartment, you were working on a team. And you were you were able to now express yourself. And on that team, you could get a lot of validation for being super creative. And you weren't really, do, you weren't really working in a field, you were working on a project. You know what I mean? And, it, and so it had all these overtones of creativity. And so what you were given was the ability to work on your creative self and and be a creative self, which is really what happens at at WeWork and even on a on a on a bigger level where they kind of house all sorts of companies like this, saying this is a place for creativity and what draws people to want to be there is supposedly there's creativity there. But there's no sense of what that creativity is for 
other than what you even see in the documentaries is a bunch of really cool singular selves really working on being a singular self. And they're working super hard on their company or their startup because in many ways it broadcasts what kind of self they are, you know, that they are, they are this kind of entrepreneurial self who's doing these things. And I mean, like Adam says this, you know, like we expect people to work really hard. We'll work really hard for what they don't share in any of the profits. And then they even said, like, I, we told them all that they that they were all owners, which when you actually did the math on how much like stock options they had, they were making like, they had like two, three thousand dollars. Yeah, They didn't even actually that. have equity. They just got the option to buy it at a later date. So it basically yeah. totally screwed them over. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They had equity options. They didn't have really any equity. But that led them to be like, well, oh, I'm the kind of self who owns this and because this is the thing about Silicon Valley or you know something like we work and we see it within the film it's it's all based around the energetic highly interesting i mean the reason that we work gets 47 billion dollars they say this in the documentary is because adam is such a singularly unique person his style is so unique that they're betting on that. Like he has, he, he, it, it is a lesson for us in, a, in this kind of secular age that he's become a singularly unique self. And if you can do that, my gosh, you can get $47 billion of investment. You don't really even, he doesn't really even have a good business plan, really. It's a little bit of a clever idea to take buildings that aren't used and be able to turn them into office space, but then to brand them in a certain way. And then you just keep talking the game. There's, there's really no way. I mean, they, they showed no way to really make profits, but it didn't matter because people were kept investing because they didn't want to lose out on the fact that he could be the kind of singular self that creates the singular company. But that all trickles down to everyone else in the business now. Everyone else can be mini Adams doing, and, and so they should work, if he's working, as he says in one of in the most obnoxious way in one of his interviews, like he starts at 6 a.m. and works till 3 a.m. 3 and then he interrupts the guy, he's like, no, it was actually 2 a.m. It was a good Monday. It was a good Monday. It was an easier Monday. It's like, man, this guy. Um, it, but you know now if you're if you're his administrator or you work you know you're you're coding for the website or something you should be working 11 12 hour days too you're not going to get paid anywhere near that and um, but it's expected of you and the idea is if you want to be an entrepreneurial self a truly creative juggernaut um, if you want to follow Adam's example of what it would look like to actually work on yourself and be this kind of creative juggernaut um, you'll do it you'll do it for the development of your unique self the, the other thing I thought of too while I was watching it uh, as far as the church world goes is I kind of looked at the way that those employees were treated is sort of the way that Youth workers have also been historically treated by a lot of churches. The program staff has been treated. Program staff has been treated. I'll even broaden that a little bit. Uh, and I think the church, we do this sometimes. We want our program staff, our youth workers, our children's ministers, our pastors, whoever, to be these hyper-motivated, creative, you know, potential-filled people who can then go and build up these just amazing ideas in our congregations and then grow it, maybe not through angel investors and billions of dollars, but definitely through butts in the pews and offering and numbers increasing in the programs and stuff. And it just, it leads to burnout, burnout city. And that's, you know, that, that the thing that really resonated with me was that woman who was one of the last people to talk, and she just talks about just the emotional toll that working there took on her, you know, and just how it, 
really just robbed her of a lot of great years of her life and she had to go to extensive therapy to get over it. And I just, I felt for her. And I think there's church workers that would have that same story. You know, I think this plays out in a lot of other places as well. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 the, the correlation or yeah, the connection between Adam and a, as senior pastor or a founding pastor who created a, a you know a juggernaut of a mega church are not that different you know what i mean like even the way he talks he talks like a, a pastor like this is a community and you can find your your you know your inner self like there's no language of god but there's language of spirituality everywhere and uh but it is this deep sense of like what validates this is growth your ability to grow something but also like you know grow yourself um it, it's an inter it's just an interesting thing i mean it's in and, and you hear him talk all the time like it's within you you can find it with within you um but at the end of the day the only way to really count if you've succeeded is by how much money you've made you know which is it's just an it's just an it's an odd thing that's been put together and there's some way that Obviously, creativity. There's a lot of that's really beautiful about it, and and um, creativity does, in some sense, it doesn't have to. But I think often we think it kind of opens us to beauty, and beauty has deep theological, um, you know, resonance with it. But the, the kind of way creativity is used in this Silicon Valley we work sense, um, I think actually does what we're what we should be very afraid of, which is uh, kind of turn the self in on itself. I think it it uh, turns the self into its own idol. And um, I think this is a huge pastoral challenge. Um, basically what he's selling more than a product is he's selling a culture, you know, um, like this culture at work. And the idea is that the culture um, is the mission and the mission is the culture and the culture then will accrue all the resources you want to get, which is, I think, very fascinating when you think about like being a pastor running a church. Like, what is your job? Well, if you follow this kind of Adam's theory and if you follow the kind of Silicon Valley chasing to be a unicorn, which is another way, really interesting thing to think about, like bishops and synods and presbyteries and other judicatories thinking about like which congregations here are, are unicorns, you know, like over 10,000 people or over 5,000 people. And um, and often what happens is in unicorn investing, like all the profits or all the attention or all all the capital goes over to them um, because they're the winning option. Everybody wants to associate with them. So, you know, people all have all sorts of experiences of, you know, program staff being head headhunted to go over to those kind of, of, of churches and, and those kind of churches not even being able to, they don't really even have to listen to the bishop if they don't want to, because uh, listen, they're a unicorn and uh, you need, you need us more than we need you is, is, is kind of the response. But it, it is fascinating how we tend to kind of follow this logic that mission really is culture and culture is what does your work. And so in, in culture is what changes the world. The, the culture of a company is what changes the world and what changes the world is being a millionaire or a billionaire, you know, like these things are all interconnected in a kind of odd kind of way, you know? So, um, and you can just see how that can be transposed onto to church life where mission is building a, a kind of culture that builds a lot of members and, um, you know, makes you a unicorn. The other thing 
that I think is, is maybe a good lesson or a warning, especially for us in the church, is I think Adam was really a savvy guy in the sense that he understood on sort of a deeper level people's need for resonance and, and resonant experiences. And so he, well, like going back to your culture thing, he wrapped his company's culture up in that. I mean, at the end of the day, what I saw him selling was resonance. It was, we're going to have this new way of work, this new way of living, this new way of sending your kids to school. It's all about the community. We, 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 we. I guess what I was really struck by is how easy it is to sort of twist that concept of resonance and, and make it a manipulative thing. So one of the things I was wondering is, is there a way that you can sort of differentiate between authentic resonant experiences? And again, if we're congregations and we're looking to help people experience these experiences, how do you do it in a way that's not manipulative and not, I don't, I don't want to use the word inauthentic, but but uh, how, how do you just do it in a way that's not manipulative of people? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that it was cased in a a shiny shell, a, a kind of candy-coated shell of resonance, but it wasn't resonance. And why it wasn't resonance, and this is, I think, the big danger as we have to think about how money functions within all this. And, you know, we just need to talk more in the context of ministry and theology and, you know, practical theology and theologies of ministry and pastoral theologies about money more. But... Um, Resonance cannot exist when you when you function into the having mode. And so it cannot work if the thing that you if you become if you if you seek to possess the world, the world can you can't have a resonant relationship when you seek to kind of have it for yourself. And this becomes the problem with the the whole dynamic of this kind of creativity is that the winner is someone like Adam who gets to exit with $1.4 billion. So he uses all the tropes of resonance, but it actually becomes the very opposite of resonance becomes an incredibly alienating experience, you know, Um, because at the end of the day and all those people start to feel like, well, shit, I was completely manipulated. Um, you know, I really followed Adam. I really believed his vision, but clearly he was lying to me the whole time. And so there, there is a kind of sense like where Bonhoeffer says it's better for a truthful person to tell a lie than for a liar to tell a truth. So a liar can actually use resonance at, to get you involved, but it's never about you. And so it's never, that's what's, I think that's what's so interesting about this documentary. It's, he keeps saying, this is about community. This is about community. This is about community. This is about resonance, resonant experiences and community, but it's not, it's really at the end of the day about having a company that's worth one billion dollars it's really about having um, a reputation as one of the most important people in new york city it's really about having these employees it's really about having a lot of money like it, it becomes about that in resonance at least in this run of Rosaway in the way I want to think about it, and, and particularly embedded in kind of personalist structures, you know, like personalism as, as a philosophical perspective or even as a kind of theological perspective, that as soon as the world becomes an object and objectified, it, it, it can't function that way. And I guess this is what I'm really pushing for is like, let's, let's all love creativity, but let's be very, very aware in this kind of authentic authenticity driven late modern age of neoliberal capitalism, authentic um, creativity can be a device to have more of the world, to possess it, to own it, to, to suck 
the life out of it in some ways. And it may initially feel like resonance, but it's not. That kind of creativity actually becomes a prison. And that's what happens in this situation. And that's what happens in certain megachurches where all of a sudden the culture that was built as the mission um, turns on people. It's and, and it reveals its teeth and its teeth has always been to have, to function out of the having mode, to have more, to have a, a greater impact. Um, and, you know, so that's my point about community with Adam is that my gosh, to really be in community, you do have to func- function, and, and we'll probably talk about this when we talk about our next movie too, and we talk about Brad's Brad's status. Um, but but residence functions out of the being mode of action, not the having mode of action. And so, functioning out of the being mode of action than the having mode of action is not something late capitalism and neoliberalism, the neoliberalism of late capitalism, affirms. You know, so so you can say it's about community all along, but that will always be a, a bait and switch unless you have something bigger that calls you to it. And particularly, I think, in the Christian tradition, like, um, you know, like the being of God, um, the uh, it becomes you need that. You can't just have community without the community kind of being embedded in, in something outside you that calls you into a different reality. New Time Religion, featuring Dr. Andy Root, is produced by me, Derek Tronsgaard. Andy's brand new book, The Congregation in a Secular Age, is out now, and you can get it wherever fine books are sold or by just going to Amazon. New Time Religion is produced by the Alter Guild Podcasting Network, and you can check them out for more great shows. Thanks again so much for listening, and we hope you join us next time for another round of New Time Religion.